Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by very special returning guest, Ben Reinhardt. Ben, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Eric. It's great to be here. So, Ben, you are a research fellow at the Astera Institute and creator of PARPA, Private ARPA, which we'll get into the into the episode. And you wrote this really fantastic piece the, the other month, uh, Shifting the Impossible to the Inevitable, a Private ARPA user uh, manual. Why don't you talk about the uh, the inspiration for, for, for this piece and what, what led to you writing it? So the, the inspiration for the piece, very high level, was frustration with the fact that the current institutional structures that we depend on to sort of make there be more awesome sci-fi stuff in the world uh, felt inadequate <laughs> at doing their job. It felt like there was, there was a real gap there. So I started digging into that and started digging into how DARPA works and sort of realized that, or at least came up with the hypothesis that it might be possible to replicate the, the DARPA model in a, in a private setting. And so that was really the inspiration was like, okay, it might be possible to, to riff on the DARPA model. And if so, how would you do that? And so the entire piece basically fell out of that as a, giant memo to myself and the sort of intention of it was both to lay out very clearly what I'm trying to do uh, with actually building PARPA as an institution, but then also hopefully lay down a lot of more general ideas that other people can, can pick up and run with uh, as well. Yeah. Well, I'm excited for this episode is because this audience is a, you know, among others, uh, a venture audience. Uh, and so they, un- you know, understand how startups are created, how they're legally structured, how they're funded, how, how they ma- how they make money, different business models. But they may not be as familiar with, uh, they may ask, hey, wh- why, why do we not have crazy sci-fi shit in the world, uh, given we have this, this venture model and, and people, listeners are very familiar with it? How would you sort of, before getting to some details of the piece, how would you sort of say, hey, what's what's incomplete about about this model, and on either the legal structure side, or the or the funding side, or commercialization side, or, or maybe we take them one by one if it's easier? Totally. So, like for the record, I am like I think that venture capital and like high growth startups are like really great at a certain class of activity, and and like really sort of like bringing things to market and bringing them up to scale. The the trick is just that like there's a set of incentives that make it so that the there, there's like a sort of a class of work that is hard for startups to do and hard for venture capital to fund. And that's that's work with like very high uncertainty around the the technology in the market. So you think about it from a a venture capital standpoint and it's like you you have a fund and you need to return like a pretty large amount to your your investors and you're sort of like competing with 
the, like many other asset classes on returns. And so the sorts of things that venture capital needs to invest in are things that can create like massive, massive returns on fairly uh, on like 10 year timescales. And like 10 years is, is a very long time in some domains, um, like 10 years, like in software, 10 years is a, a really long time. But then in terms of like really developing new physical technology, it's it's actually quite short. Like if you look at the, the time scale of say developing the transistor, uh, we're talking about, you know, like 15 years between really like kicking off the project and even having a like terrible, terrible first prototype. And so there's just like this, and the the time scales sort of like keep dragging on. And so that's that's sort of like one class of things that it's it's hard to for venture to to go after. And then also like quite frankly, uh, there's a lot of work where it's it's hard to capture the value that it creates. And so like again, like it has to do with with returning return on investment is like again like I there there's a lot of like in sort of like research um a lot of the value gets created by like people sort of like figuring stuff out figuring out like the correct point in design space which is actually like very hard and then sort of like that knowledge it makes it very easy for other people to to take and run with so like you know in venture we talk about moats all the time and like uh, very often uh, figuring out a point in design space has zero moat. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it might take you like 10 years of, of like fairly expensive research to, to get to that point. Um, but once you, you get to that point, then everybody can sort of be like, Oh yeah, like that's, that's the right thing to run with. And then they, they go for that. Um, and th- at that point, it makes sense to, to start investable companies. So that's, so, so I'd say like, just like hard to capture value and, long, uncertain research work are sort of like the two classes of things that uh, venture capital is just not well-equipped to go after. You mentioned before we were talking the need for uh, non-academic, let's bring in other sort of organization structures too, right? Yeah. uh, Academia, corporate. Why don't you talk about what what each, what each, what is each's role in sort of the comprehensive innovation ecosystem? So academia is really good at sort of coming up with with generalized principles and and really going deep like so so academia is is optimized for novelty which is really great for like coming up with new ideas and and approaches and sort of like really like not blindly but like wandering around in the woods it's real it's optimized for projects that can be done by uh maybe like two or three people and so it's it's very good at those sort of things but the the it sort of runs into limits when you need sort of larger coordinated efforts and also in, in academia you don't get very rewarded for like good designs uh once the the principle has been demonstrated so that's that's sort of the niche that academia fills corporate labs struggle a lot in the modern world because at the end of the day they 
they really only get full support when they're they're doing work that supports the the core product of uh, of the corporation they're working for, and they also sort of in order to get that support, they really need to be part of an organization that's sort of pulling in monopoly rents. So uh, I think that like Google DeepMind is is a great example of a very healthy corporate lab uh, because you can make this argument that they're they're really doing work that supports Google's sort of core product of of search and and computer related things. Whereas, and, and Google sort of like has a monopoly, but like the, the fact of the matter is that there really aren't a lot of large companies that make sort of like physical products that are pulling in monopoly rents anymore. So corporate labs are, are sort of struggling. And then you have startups which are really good at scaling things that sort of like quote unquote work already and and growing very fast. And then you also have like government labs uh, that work on things that are useful for the government, but there's um, a lot of problems with that. Uh, and then there's sort of like a long tail of of other institutions. And and so talk, you, you start the piece by talking about the the niche that industrial labs used to fill in, in, in the ecosystem and then talk about why why they no longer uh, you know, f- f- fill that niche. Why don't you? Why don't you unpack that? Yeah. So, uh, industrial labs, sort of like the the um, paragon of that being Bell Labs, but also G Labs, uh, like Dupont um, and others, used to fill this role in the the ecosystem where they brought together people with sort of very academic mindsets, but at the same time also had like large engineering teams and were tightly hooked into the entire sort of like manufacturing pipeline as well um, to sort of do what uh, Arthur Probjanker termed solutions R&D, where you're, it's still very much research, but it's targeted at a, like creating something very useful and long-term and so the corporate labs used to really sort of fill this gap. Um, people would sort of jump back and forth uh, between academia and corporate labs. Um, and they sort of gave us everything from like amazing plastics to the transistor um, and, and modern computing. And over time, sort of like, you know, it's like we, we look at, increasing competition as as a really good thing. And, and I think for the most part it is, but what it has done is it's sort of like squeezed corporate labs so that they no longer sort of have the slack to sort of do these like big exploratory programs. Totally. So say more about how, how we can better f- f- fill that niche. I have a hypothesis that we might be able to fill that niche with organizations that are are riffing on the the DARPA model. And that's sort of the hypothesis that I'm pursuing. But I I think that what we really need to do to go after that niche is try lots of different things, frankly. So it's like, I I don't propose to have like the solution, but very broadly, I think what we need to do is, is figure out ways to create alternatives to academia where people can pursue research. Uh, We need to start thinking about funding research as philanthropy very seriously. And we need to think about just like 
uh, sort of like alternative career paths for uh, people who who really want to build technology. Like right now, they can sort of go into academia or they can go into a startup and in some small cases they can go work for for corporate labs if they like have a cs degree i'm curious on on the value capture side of things one do we think that's a big bottleneck that that more much more people would be going into it if they can make a lot more money off it and then two there's one idea i heard i can't remember from who that of sort of like a retroactive x prize like you look you know the people who made the transistor obviously created a ton of value um, you know, and, and, you know, inventions like that don't always capture the value or don't often capture the value that their, you know, technology enables. And so is there a way where you could sort of give this enormous, you know, cash prize retroactively to people who create these, you know, game-changing, you know, as you mentioned, design space innovations? And and it could that serve as a, you know, forward-looking ins- inspiration for people like, oh, if I create something really meaningful, Maybe you know I'll get this you know hundred million dollar or billion dollar whatever um, you know prize. What are your thoughts? So I, I don't I don't claim to speak for everybody, but I think that the uh, uh, the value capture problem is actually less for the people doing the work and much more for the people funding the work. I've I've talked to enough people and like I'm I'm one of them where as long as we can like pay the bills and sort of like have a sense that like, you know, we'll not die in the gutter. I'm not like, there's lots of people who are not actually out to get rich. The trick is uh, where, like, where, where do our salaries come from? And like, where's, especially like, where's the money to like buy equipment come from? Right. (laughs) Like, like research, research is really expensive because you need to get all these like, like bespoke machines and buy consumables and like, rent lab space and, and all that good stuff. So it's like, where does that money come from? Um, and so the value capture, I think is much more a question for the people who are are funding that work more so than the people who are doing the work. So, and, and so I would say like, yes, it, it's very much a, an issue there. I, I think that like a, a, a robust prize system absolutely could like is 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 one potential solution. Um, there's people who have thought much more about this uh, than I have, but you could imagine almost like if you had a robust prize system, you could like take out loans based on on the prize, and so like the banks would underwrite uh, the work to to do the prizes. I, I'm not sure that it completely solves the problem, only insofar as like. There, I, I sort of like to say that there, we stand on the shoulders of too many giants to count in the sense that like, we like to think that we can sort of like assign, we can say like, oh, like this basically assign responsibility for an innovation. But at the end of the day, like as soon as you start like digging into who's responsible for, for anything, um, there's like this like cascade of people and organizations. And so it's like, I, I don't I, like maybe someone someone smarter than me can figure out a way of like really assigning credit, but there's just like so much illegible stuff that goes on. You know, it's like like barroom conversations or like this person talking to their neighbor over the hedge that I don't think that retroactive prizes would would completely solve it, but it would definitely be a step in the right direction. What are what are other bottlenecks that you see that that we haven't yet covered? 
I think like, so I, I touched on it very briefly, um, but there's, I, I think a big thing about it, uh, a bit, a big bottleneck is, is sort of what Michael Nielsen calls like shadows of the future where I, I, I think like the, the, we sort of tend to ignore like the very human aspect of people's motivations where it's like a lot of people want to have like family and, and kids and sort of like a life one day. And if you sort of like can't see what your career trajectory will look like, it makes it very hard to, to do that. And so we, we don't, uh, even like I fall into this trap where we like, we propose sort of like ways to fund people and projects for some amount of time. But the thing that sort of academia offers is like an entire career trajectory. So like somehow we need the ecosystem to like offer alternative career, like career paths, not just uh, sort of like career waypoints. Um, that, that's one bottleneck. I think a big bottleneck is also just like in the way that people uh, think about philanthropy in the sense that uh, there's this, w- w- with research, there's this really uncomfortable thing where it's like, there's, you can't, it really needs to be able to like wander and take as long as it needs and maybe not produce anything. And that's like very unsatisfying for people like that. It sort of does feel like wasting money. So it's like somehow we need to like change like how we're thinking about philanthropy away from this. I feel like there's a lot of attitude of like you're, you're buying a product um, and your like reputation is staked on this product. The, idea that I really like is like thinking about it almost like like technological tithing so there used to be a concept in like most major religions in the world that you give like something like 10% of your your income to to like the the poor and the needy and so one one idea I like to play around with is this idea that like for people who have made their money based on someone in the past doing work to build technology maybe you what we should do is like all of us just do that, that 10% tithing to someone who's like trying to, to just build technology so that in the future there can be someone else um, and pay that forward. Another bottleneck is just like how people think about um, how ideas become reality. I think like there's, I, I think like the sort of thinking about this like pipeline where you go from like basic research to applied research to commercialization. I think that 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 conception itself is is a bottleneck. And like, we need to think about it as like, there's a whole bunch of activities that need to happen in the world and like ideas kind of hop around between them. Cool, well, let's let's uh, let's shift into the, the private ARPA proposal. Why don't you sort of lay out some of the tenets of, of, of what that could look like? So the the core of the, the DARPA model in my mind is, the idea of like the empowered program manager. And basically the idea is that you uh, have someone who's very technical and really sort of has a vision for what the program could be. Um, and they're, they're effectively like a, a CEO, but not of a company. And you, you say, <laughs> and you say like, okay, go make it happen. And that person then goes and and coordinates a number of different research projects uh, across different organizations sort of towards a a concrete goal. And so 
this is this is important and different from sort of a, a startup or a, a corporate lab because what it allows you to do is pursue parallel paths towards the same goal which can be very important when you don't know sort of which part of design space in in the technology is going to be important and i think the sort of last piece that i think is is really important is this idea of of program design uh, which I meant to mention around it as a bottleneck, which is that I think sort of as a society, we've actually gotten worse at technological planning uh, because it's like this muscle that uh, software has caused us to not need to use, right? So like, if you look, I, I love this, um, this like 1976 fusion plan that the the US government created. And like, they, they actually planned out to from 1976 all the way out to 2006 in like a reasonable amount of detail. And I think that we've, you know, now that sounds ridiculous because everything is like supposed to be iterative and fast. So I, I think the, the idea that we could actually like design these programs upfront and sort of um, really think through what work needs to be done and what our hypotheses are is the, the last piece of, of the model that I think is, is defining. And just to unpack so, so some of the points in, in the piece you talk about, well, you, you talk about the difference between Bell Labs and, and, and DARPA and, and why DARPA is a better uh, sort of role model for this than, than Bell Labs. Why don't you say a bit more about that? Yeah. So like Bell, Bell Labs was great, right? And if I could get, uh, or, or anybody could get, you know, $5 billion a year, um, right now in, perpe- in perpetuity, they should definitely go start a Bell Labs. Uh, but I, I think that in the Bell Labs, in order to be what it was, it required three conditions that only a few organizations meet today. And, and those are that it was uh, supported by a company that was getting monopoly profits. It was working on, it was doing work that was tied to, to their core product, or at least answering an existential threat for them. There was a certain set of conditions that, that needed to be met that the only companies that meet that today are, are basically software companies. So if we want to see good solutions R&D being done sort of outside of pure software um, or, or like very related things, then the like any organization that we would create to try to emulate Bell Labs would not be able to meet those conditions. And so I think it would be probably likely to fail. So what are other things a private DARPA being outside of, you know, the scope of government has to, has to rethink or, 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 or consider or figure out? Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, like a big piece is money, you know, DARPA just gets a budget from Congress every year and that's, that's pretty straightforward. I've been like uh, one of the biggest questions that I'm I'm still struggling with is like how do we pay for this thing because you know if if we could confidently say like hey this will like turn a profit then it would be a good for profit company and you raise investment and off to the races but I, I think it's it's like much more and like there are investors who are like very patient and so like if if the ROI would be high enough. Then we could do that, but like I, I don't, I can't say with confidence 
that it will pay for itself. And if you actually do run the numbers, um, I would make the argument that DARPA uh, could not pay for itself. So, so the, the thing to figure out is like, how do you like get the money between philanthropy and possibly having sort of like a, a for-profit arm that just allows investors to invest in the things that we think could could make money. Um, so, so that's that's a big piece. Uh, there's also questions around um, the legal structure, right? To to support both um, the 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 funding piece, and then also thinking about sort of incentivizing the the program managers and the people who would work with us, because as I noted, it, we're asking people to temporarily do this thing that's like pretty high uncertainty and does not necessarily lead to a long-term career, right? And so it's like, how do you make that worthwhile for people? And it, and, and a part of the answer might be that you, you give them options in any upside and then also let them really have a say in how the, uh, the organization is run. So a large part of the legal structure that we're looking at involves putting a lot of uh, organizational decision-making power in the hands of the the program managers, um, and so you can sort of think of it as a as a almost like a research collective, to some extent. So th- th- those are the two major pieces, and then on top of that, there's just like you know reputational bootstrapping. Uh, DARPA has a very long track record of being an organization that people want to work with, and they they have like a lot of prestige, and so we need to think about okay, like how do we bootstrap that reputation so that amazing people will want to, to come work with us. Totally. What are other things that, that you have the biggest questions about that, that weren't yet figured out on this, uh, in this write-up? Oh man. Well, again, uh, I, I think the, the funding is, is still a big open question. We're like, so, so let's see on top of the, the funding and the legal structure, which I'm, I'm still, working on, I think a, a big open question is, is, is like, is, is it possible to sort of like narrow down what we're working on? Right. Like it, it's, I, I left it very ambiguous because I, I partially didn't know. I've, I've refined that hypothesis a little bit, something that I'm, I'm playing with, which is that the, the idea that um, like new materials and manufacturing processes are kind of the bedrock of, of civilization. And also th- they happen to be, the work to, to create them uh, sort of falls into this zone of doesn't fit into an academic lab and doesn't fit into a startup. So that's that's one thing. I think another big question is just like, what what is the incentive for people to, to come like be be a program manager instead of going off and, and starting a company or or staying in an academic lab. I think those, and then uh, I guess another another question that open question that I have uh, that that you probably have many more insights on um, is like how do you how do you sort of build a community around this thing? Um, because I think that it's uh, probably going to be very important to to have people sort of adjacent to the organization that can sort of like bubble up ideas for, for new programs, people who are potentially good program managers um, because of the temporary, temporary nature 
the role, uh, we're sort of going to need to constantly be on the lookout for that. Yeah. And I guess the other questions is like, where does it have its gaps? Cause like any, any organization is going to have constraints and, and, so like, obviously, like, e- even in, in my wildest dreams, there will be sort of activities that, that uh, Parpa won't be able to address. And so it's like questions around like, sort of doing, how do we support more, like, sort of like really exploratory research of the like, you just need to like support someone to go like, di- like piddle around for 10 years, right? And how do we, how do we support that is still a completely open question in my mind. Yeah, it's really interesting on sort of the community building or, or movement building, like there are organizations and people who are, you know, you have to be good at both like drumming up interest and then also like creating structure for people to contribute. And so like, for example, like I think a lot of people think that Pioneer is cool, like Daniel Gross's effort. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people think that Laura Deming's Longevity Fund is awesome. And I think there are, so they've done an amazing job of drumming up interest and they're like laser focused on their, their business, which, which is great. Um, but I wonder if there's like some value that's being left on the table in terms of people like with capital, with talent, with expertise in like adjacent areas that if they, it, there's so much interest that maybe they should be creating more structures to harness all, all, all that interest. Yeah, and exactly. And it's like the, the, I, I, have no good answers to like how do you actually do that <laughs> yeah so that, that I, I think that that's probably like on deck's job yeah but you inspired just that new um sort of like breakdown because I, I hadn't thought about you know that you need to do both um and that they're two separate things in some sense yeah that, that's it's it's this is all really um this is all really interesting I want to go back to some of the stuff that you mentioned in the in the piece, particularly around legal structures. You talk about um, you know entrepreneur first and, and YC having sort of um, you know these hybrid structures in a sense, mm-hmm. you know, hybrid venture uh, upco model. What do you think that looks like uh, here? Um, uh, for 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 Parpa? Yeah, yeah. So like what does the, hybrid approach look like. So, like very concretely, the the way that I'm structuring it um, is that there's a, a a nonprofit entity and a for-profit entity, and they're they're separate. Um, but the the for-profit owns sort of like uh, like special controlling shares in the the for-profit entity, and then um, and so so and all of the 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 re- the work like the research work happens in the context of the nonprofit with the hope that that shifts incentives towards like creating amazing technology more so than creating profitable technology. But then every once in a while, something uh, that is like actually makes sense as a company, like every once in a while, like there's a a technology and it's like, Oh, okay. Like the best way to get this into the world will actually be, be a company. Um, And in that situation, we'll, license the the technology to the the for-profit and the for-profit will will spin it out and then with the intention that one that will hopefully make the entire organization more self-sustaining right like uh if if we can create an entire new industry like a company that creates a new industry um it it will definitely make the 
organizational longevity go up. Um, and then also it will sort of give people who are uncomfortable just like donating money directly, but are okay with like very long-term, very high chance of zero return investments, um, a, a way to, to support the organization. And then finally, it will hopefully um, incentivize program managers by saying like, hey, you have you have some stake in in the outcome here. So like even if you yourself are working on something that is going to turn into to a company, if someone does, then you get a, a stake in the upside. So those those are sort of and then I guess the the last sort of like weird thing about the legal structure is that um, everybody who is a uh, a program manager has sort of like a a vote in what the nonprofit does. And so again, it's like, it's, I, I sort of actually was looking a little bit at um, like universities and how they like manage to have this, like, like they, they managed to maintain a very consistent culture for, you know, hundreds of years in, in some cases. Um, and I think it's because people who go there, like really feel a lot of, of stake and ownership. And so I was trying to like replicate that with the, the legal structure. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, I love that sort of potential joint ownership model. Yeah. Uh, well, again, this is all like <laughs> this is all hypothesis. Um, so, and, and I guess like sort of a, a meta thing that I'm trying to go for with this whole thing is to like do a bunch of institutional experiments and document them uh, very well, so that hopefully, even <laughs> even if we don't succeed, uh, other people can learn from it. Right. So it's like, I sort of see this whole thing as a, as a meta experiment where it's like, okay, like here's the hypothesis. Uh, we're going to like actually do the thing and like build the legal structure. And then we'll like uh, continue to like put out reports on, on how, that, how it's going. What does success look like here in terms of not, not just, well, yeah, for, for, for Harpa in general, but also in terms of like, you mentioned you want to see a bunch of different experiments, like, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, this, paper has the biggest, you know, success it could possibly have. What, what, what world does that look like? What happens? So, so the biggest success that it could possibly have is like, one, PARPA is, is thriving as an organization, but two, a bunch of other people have created uh, like other things. So, so like just other organizations that uh, support new ways of creating science and technology. Um, so like, you know, it's like you have examples like um, uh, like FROs. So you like see a bunch of those. You might see like some organization that just like gives someone like basically like endows people. Like you can imagine like someone uh, going and endowing people um, and just or like you can imagine an organization that is like really trying to create a like pre-commitment or like a market pre-commitment or like prize ecosystem. And just, just like generally having people trying more institutional experiments, right? Like in the same way that I think like, I would, I would say that like Paul Graham has won in the sense that like startups are now a thing, right? Like where, when uh, Y Combinator was starting, like people did in startups, but it wasn't like, there wasn't a whole like culture and like normalization around it. It was still like really weird. Uh, I'd love to see that happen, but for like institutional experiments. 
I think like that would be the the wildest success. Um, and then like ultimately, like, and then ultimately like that actually leading to, to outcomes, right? Like where it's like, I want us to be able to like, like fly our, our airships over like unexplored land and like grow highways. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just like launch self-contained artificial farms to Mars and have robots tend them so that when people land there, there's like fresh zucchini. Yeah. That, that, that's fascinating. <laughs> the, um, it, it's, if I had to boil down like a lot of the, when I talk to, you know, Jose and, and, um, and some of our other sort of peers interested in these topics, but like if I had to boil down some of their, their advice or, or with their suggested recommendations, like more broadly is what they want to see is like more decentralization in terms of, you know, how, how things are funded in terms of capital sources and, and how money is distributed. Um, and then also just more like, you know, no strings attached funding, just mm-hmm. you know, find awesome people and let them, you know, experiment and tinker as opposed to, you know, put a lot of boxes around it. Is, is that a fair summary of, 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 of some of the biggest, um, you know, things that might move the needle in terms of how funding works? I think so. I, I think what, what I would, the, the, my reframing of that is like, we need more uncorrelated experiments. And so like that sort of gets at the the decentralization piece. I think the, I, so it's like, I definitely agree that like no strings attached funding would be great. I don't quite agree with that as a recommendation because I don't think that it will happen. Um, <laughs> and I like recommendations to be a little bit more pragmatic. So I might say like sort of like new ways of like organizing those strings would be would be my riff on that. Uh, one of the things we, we talk a lot about is funding and it seems like there's an increased opportunity for philanthropists here we're actually at on deck going to be uh, starting a philanthropist uh, sort of programming uh, nice. soon. And so what is sort of the call out for like, wh- how do philanthropists, um, what's their role? How should they be thinking about things differently? And um, yeah, wh- 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 how are you thinking about that sort of uh, leg of the stool, so to speak, as part of the ecosystem? Yeah, this is, the, I think a lot of the suggestions that I have are a little bit unpalatable to many philanthropists. And I sort of like, I very much understand that. And so what I'm actually working on is like trying to figure out like how to create more, like sort of like uh, almost like create like a third direction. So there's not this tension Um, because a lot of the suggestions involve like, like more trust, more delegation. Uh, I I think the, the biggest piece is that it's almost less when, when you're starting up a new institution uh, it's less about the money at the moment and more about the being able to know that there will be money in the future. So what you see very often is that philanthropists are pretty on board with like funding about like small experiments, but then there's no uh, there's no agreement around like what success for that experiment looks like. And like the fact that there will be like follow on funding uh, if you, you are successful. And so you just, and and so there's like this, this tension there. And then I think another thing that philanthropists can really do that's that I realize is, is deeply uncomfortable is like help 
these experiments like reputationally bootstrap. So there, there's like, the, especially for, for people who have a lot of money, it's like really uncomfortable to have your name associated with something that, that might fail um, or might that you don't have like a lot of control over. But at the same time, it's like many of these experiments sort of like never get off the ground um, and can't raise more money because they can't associate, they, they can't reputationally bootstrap off of the, the people who are funding them. And then I think the, the last piece is just like, I, I think that it's, it's, there's this hesitancy to fund something that doesn't have a path towards sustainability. And right now, one of the only models we have, like the sort of like really like concrete hypotheses that you can have that is sustainable is being profitable. But then if you're doing something that's not profitable, uh, you can't make an argument for sustainability. And that makes people not want to fund it because they're like, like reasonably, they're like, well, I don't want to fund this thing that's just going to like need to like leech off of me forever. So we like need to find some new way of creating sustainable organizations that aren't necessarily sustained by selling a product that makes a profit. Um, and, and something that I just want to double click on is this, I, like, I, I think that we get a little bit like, like it, it's easy to say like the problem is funding, but I actually, I see, especially in the context of, of PARPA, I see funding as like one piece of a larger like coordination mechanism, right? So like money is a very good way to get people to coordinate. Um, and at the end of the day, it's, it's, a, it's like, it's a coordination problem. And like the way that, and money plays a large role in it, but it's like not simply a matter of just like giving money to the right people, I, I would argue. Yeah. And how do you, how do you think we can get better at giving money to the right people? Um, who that, that is a good question. Um, I think like, I, I think that the trick is like one is, I think, I, th- I mean, I think that that is, that is the question. I think like, one is like better, ways of like building trust. And I, I don't, and that's like very fuzzy and I don't quite know how to do that. I, 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 like ideally it would be, so, so, he, oh, here's another tension or just around like uh, philanthropists is that th- like they also tend to be people who have, they are very, very busy people um, with a lot of demands, both on their their time and their attention and, and their money. And so there's this tension where like, you have like five minutes to convince someone that you're, you're trustworthy and that you have a good idea, which is going to select for people who are really good at pitching rather than maybe the people who are going to be best at executing. Um, and so like if there's, and, and so perhaps a better, like one way to get better at finding the right people is to like more explicitly delegate trust. So like really start, figuring out like, okay, like who do you trust on what axes and like, and then like really sort of like going all in on that. And the the model that I I love is like actually from uh, Vannevar Bush's memoirs where like FDR basically just said to to Bush, he's like, okay, like if you tell me that this scientist should be in charge of a thing, we're just going to put him in charge of the thing. Right. So there's like complete delegation on the science front to Bush and then Bush in turn, uh, had like a couple of lieutenants that he completely delegated his trust to. And so if like those people came to him, like he would like literally just spend like five minutes looking at the proposal and just say like, well, I trust you that 
Like, I'm not going to second guess you. And so I, I feel like there's like a lot of second guessing that goes on. And I'm not quite sure why. But if we can somehow get to a, a system where we delegate trust more effectively, I think that would be really important. That's a, that's a good place to, 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 to wrap. Uh, for, ben, for those interested, wh- where can you point them to? Uh, so I would, I would just point them to uh, the, the write-up about PARPA. It's very long. You don't have to read all the, the pieces. Um, and there's, there's a short two-pager that goes along with it. Uh, and, and the URL for that is just uh, PARPA, like private ARPA, uh, .tech. Um, and yeah, that's, that's probably the, the best place to, to learn about that. Feel free to reach out to me uh, via email or, or Twitter. And hopefully I'll have more updates soon. Awesome. Uh, Ben, thanks so much for coming to the podcast. It's been a great episode. Eric, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.